Yeah, just to recap, in case people still don't know about this one, Kamal Santamaria resigned as Breakfast's presenter after just a month in the role after being accused of acting inappropriately in the workplace, and it subsequently turned out that he had been the subject of complaints about inappropriate behaviour at his previous workplace, Al Jazeera, and that revelation understandably disappointed TVNZ staff, and TVNZ commissioned a report into the process that led to Santa Maria being hired without these red flags being raised. And that report has just been released, and its findings have come out, and both Santa Maria and TVNZ's head of news and current affairs, Paul Urisic, have resigned. Now, was the resignation of Urisic expected out of all this? You know, it wasn't clear exactly what role he played in this, what he might have done wrong. The report paints a more clear picture of that. It says that basically no checks were made as to Kamal Santa Maria's suitability for his role as breakfast presenter. And look, that's not hugely unusual from its account. Uh, it seems that TVNZ has been following a pretty bespoke process for hiring its presenters, dating back to 2013, where it kind of has these highly tailored processes. processes. Uh, but this one was a bit different in that Kamal Santa Maria wasn't screen tested. Paul Urisic didn't call up any references provided by Santa Maria. He didn't speak to anyone who'd worked with them. It's sort of Paul Urisic worked with Santa Maria at Al Jazeera, and the report sort of reads like he just shoulder tapped his former colleague for this high profile job uh, without doing this or doing little or doing no due diligence, and that's proved obviously particularly disastrous given the subsequent revelations that he was the subject of sexual harassment complaints at Al Jazeera. And we've heard at Media Watch that some news staff at TVNZ were ready to quit if Paul Urisic came back. So it's possible that this outcome was always kind of inevitable and he was always going to have to leave. I guess the theme is there's more accountability to be had here. Because if you remember, a lot of this initial controversy over the story was about the fact that Kamal Santa Maria just disappeared off the air and he was gone for a week before people said, hey, what the heck, where's this guy gone? And TVNZ issued a statement saying he'd departed due to a family emergency. And a lot of people felt that was kind of misleading, mainly because it was kind of misleading. And there's been a <laughs> sort of little in the way of accountability over that language other than TVNZ and Simon Power admitting that they probably shouldn't have used it. The newsroom at TVNZ journalists are trying to get to the bottom of this on behalf of the public had to deal with um, the legal representatives of other arms of TVNZ. So I'm wondering if this has sorted all that out and whether it's back to peace and harmony within the whole organisation now. I'm also a bit curious because we're merging with them next year. It was a strange situation where I think there was Kim Baker Wilson was doing these stories and he was hiring outside legal counsel because they couldn't you know, use the in-house ones to check his stories about his own organization but uh, so yeah pretty uncomfortable stuff and i don't know if you remember this as well but during this whole ordeal there there was another sort of strange mini flare-up about tv and his story production and operations general manager andrew fernie sent a furious email to staff telling them that he was embarrassed and frankly quite disgusted that an all-staff email from simon power had been leaked to the media and of course Andrew Fernie's email was promptly leaked to the media. And TVNZ <laughs> staff were clearly annoyed that one of their senior managers seemed much more concerned about a leaked email and more furious and embarrassed about a leaked email than the fact that the organisation had hired someone that was so clearly unsuitable. Uh, and, you know, the release of this report may ease the tensions a little bit and some of that friction between management and staff. But 
that that friction obviously doesn't totally begin and end with your research. So it'll be interesting to see whether that gets smoothed over over ahead of our merger. No, you, you know, Hayden, that um, sometimes it's a bit of a media watch is what's wrong with the media watch watch. Um, it's all bad news. It's all the things that the media is doing wrong. But am I right in looking at your notes and seeing you want to give um, some aspect of the media a big bouquet? Yes, I am sensitive to <laughs> the fact that I may be perceived as negative, but I, I, I do want to say something positive. I guarantee that I am mostly sound in body and mind as I say this, uh, but I, I thought that I would dole out some positivity, mostly because a while back, uh, real media watch heads will remember this correspondent Mark Dalder of Newsroom came onto the show to implore every journalist to incorporate climate change into their coverage and that report was partially motivated by coverage of flooding on the west coast when few media outlets linked what was happening to climate change even though it was almost certainly or certainly exacerbating what was happening and this is what he had to say about that back then. And I almost feel like that's the lowest bar, right, is that you have a climate-influenced natural disaster. You should obviously mention climate change while writing about it. Five or 10% of the articles that I looked at uh, covering the West Coast flooding made any mention of climate change when, you know, again, that event would not have been as bad. It would not have caused as much damage as it did without climate change. That's really important context. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, Brian, but recently we've had a few different extreme weather events around the world. Mm-hmm. and I'm pleased to report that many of our media outlets have cleared what Mark described there as that lowest bar, some with relative ease. Was there any particular weather event that you were thinking about here, um, Hayden? Yeah, not necessarily a local one. I was particularly impressed by the package that News Hub at 6 put together about the heat wave, which has afflicted the UK and Europe. And here's a clip from how they covered that last week. The climate change nightmare is unfolding tonight. Britain has just had its hottest day on record at 40.3 degrees Celsius. Homes, even villages, were ablaze from Yorkshire in the north to Surrey in the south. Look, pretty dramatic, but you can't say they weren't making the link, right? Pretty definitive right up the front of the, right up the, front of the script there. That was how Mike Roberts did it, and that pretty much set the tone for the rest of that report, which carried through until the first ad break. There wasn't any even anything light and fluffy before to take you into the air break like you normally would have. And I've also seen more mention of climate links in places like Staff One News and The Herald and RNZ uh, in coverage of our recent flooding events. So there seems to be at least, and when it comes to weather coverage, an awareness that we need to link this to climate change and to what will be happening in future due to climate. Okay, well that's, that's one step, but what next, Hayden? This is, as Mark said, kind of the lowest bar, right? Because it's this is obvious, especially a heat wave can be caused due to global warming. That's an easy link to make. But what I'd love to see is reporters more consistently look at the climate implications of stuff that's not as intuitively linked to the issue. Because while extreme weather is an obvious one, this is a problem that has implications for just about every area of coverage, everything, but particularly housing, transport, and business. All of those things are going to have to change radically or, or, or they everyone is calling for us to change those areas radically. So in her piece on the UK heatwave, News Hub's Europe correspondent Lizette Raymer impressed upon the audience the importance and urgency of getting this stuff right, and she had this to say. This summer is a wake-up call. Our house is on fire. Our house is on fire. Now that sounds pretty urgent, right? 
And scientists would agree. They think it's pretty urgent. And I've said what we need to do to put that fire out. Now, I've said stuff like we need to base our cities around public transport, walking and cycling. We need to densify our inner suburbs. So those sorts of transport choices are more possible and much more common. And this is all on the record from the IPCC. I'm not just saying this myself. But on the same channel where you can hear that our house is on fire, you can tune in the next morning to hear a host like Ryan Bridge on the AM show deliver asinine opinions about how cycleway spending is wasteful or begin interviews with pro-cycling councillors like this. Now, I know that you're not here in our studio. I'm wondering if, if you were worried about traffic. Uh, lack of a, a bike bridge uh, from the North Shore to your place. Could you not have driven a car? Do you not have one? Hmm. Could you not have driven a car? I mean, <laughs> this is... This, I mean, it just... If a house is on fire, this feels like it could be an area of improvement. I know I'm preaching <laughs> to the choir with you, Brian. Little, of course you are. We don't, we don't have to have this dumb culture war. We're, we're facing an urgent problem, and the solutions are evidence-based. They're recommended by people that know what they're talking about. So can we be a little bit more mature in how we discuss them? Can we not do this all the time whenever people... Did, sort of propose the bare minimum changes that we need in response to this crisis. Now, uh, speaking of warmer climates, you wanted to address some criticism of the media coverage about Christopher Luxon and his trip to the warmer climes of Hawaii at the same time his social media was talking about him being somewhere else. If you haven't seen the news over the last couple of days, Christopher Luxon got caught posting that he's... Uh, with the hard-working locals of Tepuki while he was actually on holiday in Hawaii. And you might say, easy mistake to make. Both beautiful, sunny oases in the Pacific. No big deal. But the media has not accepted that excuse. NZME's Thomas Colgan was the first to spot the contrast between Luxon's actual whereabouts, again, Hawaii, and his Facebook page's claim that he was in Tepuki visiting local businesses. And he wrote a story under the headline, Christopher Luxon's social media suggested he was in Tepuki. He was actually overseas on holiday. And the story, as you probably know, has gone international. It's been covered by the UK paper, The Times, along with Australian media. And some of those headlines are pretty brutal. For instance, the Sydney Morning Herald went with New Zealand politician on a Hawaiian holiday tells Kiwis he's hard at work. Uh, <laughs> to the point. And the well, they've had their own experience with ScoMo, haven't they? Exactly. Exactly, actually. I mean, the... This, this, is a, this is not even a unique experience. I, I'm going to say this later, but yes, they have had it's uh, ScoMo going on holiday to Hawaii during the Australian bushfire crisis in 2019. What is it so about Hawaii like, and conservative politicians from this part of the world? I don't know. It seems, must be, I've never been. It must be a lovely place because it seems like just about every successful conservative politician is... is um, holidaying there. Maybe there's some sort of conservative power source there. Anyway, back here in New Zealand, I'm guessing there was criticism from, well, was there criticism from both sides of the political spectrum? I assume there was criticism from the left. Uh, There was criticism of the media from the left. I didn't think this was particularly worthwhile. They said that maybe the media had been uh, covering up the fact that Luxon was uh, overseas. They've not done their duty in informing the public that the leader of the opposition was overseas. Uh, before this blow up over his social media post. But as I understand it, reporters knew Luxon was on holiday. They didn't know he was in Hawaii. And in any case, the fact that he's on holiday isn't really news. It's not really a story. It only became one after he claimed on social media that he was in Tepuki, not Hawaii. And when he did that, it duly got blanket coverage. I don't think it's a scandal there 
I would sort of award that criticism zero out of ten. What I'd say good on Thomas Coughlin because he got a good story that ran around the world. That's true. He got it from a tip off as well. I so I mean, the the maybe the more criticism comes from the right. And on his show this morning, Mike Hosking gave some free advice to National on how it should handle this flare up. And he said the problem wasn't so much that Christopher Luxon had, you know, posted about being in Tapuki while he was in Hawaii, though that certainly wasn't ideal. Uh, Hosking said the bigger problem was that this biased media was making a bigger deal of it than it actually was. And here's what he had to say there. Basically still, the media loves the government, broadly speaking, and they don't like the opposition or they don't like Luxon. And given any opportunity, they'll hoe in. And the difficulty with that is, I mean, forewarned is forearmed, so the National Party should wake up to that in a major way, and so this is the way it's going to go. So you've got to be smarter than the media. You've got to outsmart the media. Right. Uh, what media is he talking about there? Because he's part of the media, isn't he? And his organisation, yeah. News Talk ZB, is a pretty big part of the media. I think that the allegation there is that the media is running an anti-Luxon agenda and that that's what's really driving the story. But, I mean... I do take a bit of issue with that because if this is all due to anti-lux and agenda-driven media, then our reporters have somehow managed to drag the UK and Australia into this scheme and their conspiracy here and that would be impressive on its own. But I suspect the story's prominence is due to other factors, as you mentioned. This is kind of a bit of a politician trope, right? Uh, there was Scott Morrison, as you say, going to Hawaii while the Australian bushfires raged. And, and Ted Cruz, do you remember this, in the US, going to Cancun while... His home state, Texas, endured an energy crisis. And so this one doesn't quite have the same abdication of duty angle, but Luxon's deflections about how Kiwis actually really care about the cost of living crisis, not his Hawaiian holidays, they sort of have some of the shades of the same disconnect from the ordinary lives of his constituents. They're not, you know, he's not exactly connected to the cost of living crisis that much if he's taking midwinter holidays to Hawaii. But I, I, I mean, all of that is probably what's driving it, but I think Really, the basic thing that's driving this story more than any agenda-driven media is the fact that it's just very crack-up. And here's News Talk ZB's Tim Roxborough making that point to Jason Waltz. The main reason that people are still talking about it is because it's very, very funny to be in Tapuki when you're actually in Hawaii. I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Tim Roxborough... I think that you took the I don't know how people in Tepuki are going to take that. Uh, it's very funny. To say, it's very funny to confuse the two. And no offence to either place, but it is very funny to confuse the two. And I think that in seven seconds there, Tim Roxborough has really got to the heart of this a bit more than you know, Hosking could in, in a lot more seconds. Uh, I mean, the second thing about this, right, is that Mike Hosking's criticism is that the media, uh, media is biased against Christopher Luxon. But the, the story was extensively and first covered in a paper called the New Zealand Herald. And if you know, that paper's owner is NZME, which which also owns Newstalk ZB, which employs Mike Hosking. So this seems a bit like NZME on NZME violence. And it's not the first run-in that Hosking's had with his own company here. He also breezily asserted that New Zealand would max out at 70 or 80% vaccinated while the company ran its much-wanted 90% project, trying to get us to 90% vaccinated. He got in trouble with Newstalk ZB's political editor, Barry Soper, in April last year, after saying the press gallery were asleep at the wheel and not asking tough questions of Jacinda Ardern. And Soper's defence then was that NZME and other outlets employ a ton of good journalists and they ask tough questions, and that's true. Absolutely true. Uh, 
but while he was unduly harsh, uh, maybe Hosking was right to aim some criticism in Ted May's way because it has made a bit of a few iffy editorial decisions recently. And uh, one of those was covered on the weekend. Colin covered uh, New South ZB's deputy political editor, Jason Wall's criticism over what he claimed was $20,000 in government funding for a documentary titled Susie and the Virus. Oh, yeah. And that, that was not true. So that, that 20000 in funding was for a separate project. Uh, the, the film in question only received $8,000 in public money and NZB has since issued a correction. And the thing is that this wasn't the only... The thing that happened to this story is it got taken down. It got disappeared. It just vanished from the Herald's website. And that was one of three stories that vanished from the Herald's website just this week. Uh, I'll say the other one, there's, there's been uh, one about protest at Marsden Point that was pulled down after fight against conspiracy theories. Aotearoa complained that it had given uncritical coverage to the anti-vaxxer Brad Flutie. Uh, and there was, uh, that just went down. The other story was in the Rotorua Post uh, about what it said was an Emmy-winning mayoral candidate uh, uh, Kala Devi Ananda, that was pulled after it turned out she hadn't actually won an Emmy. What I thought was interesting about these is that they just disappeared from the website. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a weird approach to corrections, I think. But, um, I mean, I put that to NZME this week, and it noted it had fewer media council complaints that powered against it this year than stuff for RNG. Good point. And it, it mentioned that it doesn't actually pull these stories down as a matter of course. It only does so in rare circumstances, and it noted that two of these stories had actually been re-uploaded with acknowledgement of the fact that they had errors in them initially. And that's true. So that one about Brad Flutie has been re-uploaded. The one in the Daily Post has been re-uploaded too. The one from Jason Walls from this weekend, that hasn't been re-uploaded because its premise was basically wrong.